Well, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, and our reading starts there in verse 9, and we'll read through verse 13. This, of course, you'll recognize is the Lord's Prayer, and since it is our text, but it's also a prayer, then I welcome you to read along or to pray along with me as I read the text beginning there together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The very words of Jesus. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We began our study in the Sermon on the Mount, looking at each one of the petitions last week in the address where Jesus said, pray like this. And he began with our Father in heaven. And we talked a little bit about the Old Testament view of God in the great monotheistic view that they had, but then recognizing that there was, even in the Old Testament, we quoted a couple of passages from the Old Testament out of Isaiah and the Psalms that talked about the fatherhood of God. But it is good to remember that the fatherhood of God, while applying in a general sense to all of humanity, applies in a special way to believers. That's why when the Lord speaks to his disciples and teaching them to pray, he says, our Father, using the possessive pronoun, our Father who art in heaven. Also, we notice that it is God in heaven. It is the true God. It is the reigning God, the real God, the existent God. And we noted some of his attributes that when we pray, we're praying to the supreme being of all the universe, the one who created all. And yet, he's a father. He is our father. But Paul will tell us when a more thorough explication of the gospel comes forth from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, we'll find that it is those who have been born of the Spirit of God that are able to say, Abba, Father, our true, close, loving intimate, caring Father. And so we have a revelation of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that is the consistent testimony of Scripture. That our God, our Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, in whom and with whom he enjoyed the most intimate and close and imminent of all relationships. That is the Heavenly Father and the Eternal Son. And it is he who leads us. It is he who teaches us. It is he who is the firstborn of many brethren. It is Christ who brings us to the Father. No one can come to the Father except by Christ. 
Jesus prays that the Father has given him a number and he has brought and is bringing each and every one of that number into the Father's presence. He is bringing them to himself. So this is a very important message to believers, believers in Jesus Christ. What happens here in this next petition, and by the way, there's some debate as to whether there's six or seven petitions, depending on how you divide the one on uh, at the very end on temptation and evil. And I, I believe it's probably easier to see that there's six. The first three have to do with God. In fact, it said, your name, your kingdom, your will. And then the other three have to do with us. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. The interesting thing that prayer begins with taking the focus off of ourselves and putting it on God. Most of the time when we go to prayer that's outside of our routine or our discipline of prayer, it's because we've got a problem. We have an issue. We have a need. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. I don't know how many times in my life, and you have too, have called upon the Lord in your distress. You have sought Him in your time of need. Don't stop doing that. To come into the presence of God with yourself on your mind is okay. But it's not really the starting place. The starting place is to come into the presence of God in prayer with the Lord uppermost in our mind. And that's what happens here in these first three petitions. We approach the throne of grace. We come to God in prayer. We're going to ask him for things. It's going to be prayer, asking and receiving. It's going to be from our hearts, but it starts with our eyes looking to the Lord himself. There is a name to sanctify. There is a kingdom to come to bring in. And there is a will to be done. And these all are our Father's name, His kingdom, His will. Later on in this sermon, the Lord will tell us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added to us. Well, so it is in our prayer. Pray first to the Lord. Then these other things, these other petitions will follow suit and will take care of themselves as you bring them before the Lord. Let's look just a moment here at this notion of hallowed be thy name or hallowed be thy name. That's one of those good old King James words that somehow makes it through all of the scores of English translations. And really what it means, it means to sanctify. There's another word we've got to take a look at. It really means to make holy or to regard as holy, to set forth as holy. The, the uh, paraphrase for this that's given in the commentary by John Calvin is, may thy name be sanctified. To hallow is to sanctify, to make holy, to regard as holy, to revere, to venerate. 
And I'm a little embarrassed doing this. I've done it so many times over the years, but I'll do it again because there are some folks with us that hadn't been with us for the last 14 or 15 years we've been doing this service. And, and that's to talk a little bit about the notion of holy, H-O-L-Y, holy. The notion, the notion of holy at its very root is to cut and to clean. Now, to cut doesn't mean just to cut in two, although it may, to bifurcate, but it means to cut away from, to separate from. And so the, one of the main ideas in holiness is that something has been cut away from and has been set aside. It, the word is used like uh, in uh, a cutting horse. A cutting horse cuts one particular animal, one calf or one steer, one cow, out of the herd. And that's what holy is. It's to separate something and to put it in a class by itself. It also means to clean. It has to do with with cleaning and cleansing. Um, the, 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 the notion that, that we are to uh, understand that God is in his purity, the notion of holiness in God is that God is cut away from, he is beyond, he is separated from, he's other than his creation. One of the great false doctrines that slips into all Christianity from time to time is to confound and confuse the divine creator with his creation. We see that in pantheism and panentheism. We see that a little bit in the environmental movement. There is a sacredness that is given to the earth, that is the, create, the creation, rather than given to the Lord God. And so this notion of making him separate, making him one that we understand. Now, this is not to do anything to God. I say make him. What I mean is, is help our understanding of what he is intrinsically and he is ontologically and he is actually. He is holy. It becomes our task to recognize that. When the scripture says, be holy as your father in heaven is, is holy, as it's reminded in the Old Testament over and over, as Peter reminds us in his epistle that we are to be holy like the Lord. It is that we are looked to those attributes of God that, that characterize principally his holiness and we are to follow suit. There is sense in which God is separated from creation, separated from sinful, fallen man and earth. And we are to be too. We are to see ourselves as cut away from and separated from the, the, the natural order of things which is so depraved and is so debauched and is so absolutely debilitated in its spiritual life. We are to look to other things, the, the other which is holy. It is not only beyond creation and beyond the world that we are to look, but we are to recognize this sacredness, this, this separation. And the Old Testament holiness is taught over and over and over in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch and especially in the book of Leviticus. Things were holy. Certain vessels in the temple were holy vessels. Now they were just like the other vessels. They were made by hand. They could hold water or fluid or whatever they were to do. Certain utensils, certain pieces of furniture, certain fabrics, but they were designated as holy. 
They were holy unto the Lord, and you couldn't do certain things. You couldn't touch them. You couldn't handle them if you weren't uh, uh, properly cleansed yourself. And the whole idea, time and again, of what God is teaching us is holiness. Holiness, that is, to be separate from and to be cleansed to him. And that's the third idea, not only the idea of otherness and separation, but the idea of sacredness. But we also find in holy the idea of purification. That is, it is to be clean. We are to be clean. There is absolutely nothing at all, nothing at all in the Lord that is impure. The prophet Habakkuk and all the prophets were versed very much in the attributes of God. That's why they were so helpful in divine revelation as God had taught them things. And one of the things that Habakkuk saw in his prophecy when he saw a defiled people, that is the Chaldeans, they were going to, by prophecy, eventually uh, conquer uh, Israel and Judah especially. He said, thou art of two pure eyes, too pure of eyes to behold iniquity. In other words, God's holiness does not even look upon sin. Can't stand the sight of sin and its iniquity and its perversion and its wickedness. Whether it's found in the creature or whether it's found in anyone else, God cannot take any perversity in his creation. And this is the notion that, that God is is pure and he is it, it basically comes from the, the the root word for cleanse it means literally to purge god is pure clean see all these attributes of god amount to uh, his understanding of what he is like intrinsically when we understand the hallowedness or the holiness of god we can begin to understand that God is not a man. In fact, that's what we have so much in modern Christianity. It's been my observation in about 50 years of observing that basically what we have in so much Christianity, including in evangelical churches, is we have a humanism, a Christian humanism with the focus upon the human condition, the human ability, the human potential. But instead, when we come to the prayer, the Lord wants us to immediately focus our eyes upon God and his intrinsic majesty, his goodness, his holiness. These are all the attributes of God. We spoke of a few last week. We'll speak of others as we go. But these are the things that make God who he is. He is a being. He is a he is a reality that is above all realities. In fact, he's the foundation for reality. It's just a casual observation, but when you forget God in a society, and there's a sense in which you lose your mind. And that's what we've done in our culture. If you haven't noticed it in the last few years, you've been asleep. We have tried to get rid of God. We have tried to not retain God in our knowledge. We've tried to either explain him away, deny him, push him away, cover him up, falsify him any way we can in our classrooms and in our culture and in our marketplace. And we've slowly lost our mind. We don't know 
one thing after another. We don't understand now gender. We don't understand psychology. We don't understand economics and business. We don't understand true biblical godly government. All these things are escaping us as a culture because we have put God out. God has turned us over. Paul says it kind of succinctly. He's turned us over to a reprobate mind. And when we come back to the prayer, the first thing we do is focus on God. And that's what we need to do in our culture, as I think all of you would agree. We need to return to an understanding of the Lord God. These are all the attributes of God, but they're also actions and activities of God. Not just the attributes of God to be recalled to mind, but our, the, the very acts of God, the opus Dei, the things that God has done, the things that he has accomplished. First creation, then his provident care over all of creation, and his upholding and sustaining everything with, a, with an order that is magnificent, and then his saving work, his redemption, creation, re, re, uh, and providence and redemption are kind of the three large categories of what God is doing to restore fallen humanity and to restore the groaning and the agonizing and the suffering creation that's all around us due to mankind's sin. So God is at work accomplishing these things. These are the, the things that are the attributes of God and the activities of God. And then, hallowed be thy name. The name, and I think most of you know this, that the name is kind of a comprehensive um, understanding of something. When God gave Adam the responsibility of naming all of the animals, it wasn't just a, well, that's a giraffe, and that's a horse, and that's a pig, you know, and that's a hippopotamus. It wasn't just a miscellaneous naming. It was an understanding, a taxonomy, a zoology that was being put together that he might relate and understand the whole panorama of, of, of order in the animal kingdom coming all the way to that which God had created and as a special crowning of the animal kingdom far beyond animal in so many ways but yet divine in so many ways in the image of God, mankind himself. And so the name of God is the summation of his being, his person, his essence. Now, the name in the Old Testament was an ineffable name. Basically, the name of God as he was given was the to be verb, and it was given with four consonants. And we roughly translate those a Y-H-V-H. And that's where we get the name Jehovah. Vowel points were assigned to those coming from another great word in the Old Testament that talked about the Lord God, the one high and lifted up and mighty, Adonai. And so there's, there's a whole history there. And most of you are probably familiar with this. You've studied the name of God and its uh, a derivation in everything. But we have here this ineffable name that is, that is lifted up. It is the summation of all God's being. And it is order that we might have the understanding of his glory, his weightiness. I've, I've preached two Hebrew words this morning. I've preached the... Kadosh, which is the holiness of the Bible. And I preach the kabod, which is the glory or the weight of Holy Scripture with respect to God Almighty. God is significant, to say the least. 
He is the weightiest thing. He is the most important thing. He has in, in all of his works in all of his creation. Now to sum up in gospel preaching, when Jesus came in John 17, you read the prayer of Christ. I was going to read it for us this morning. We don't have time. Uh, he talks about he has come to manifest the glory of God. And now he's asking the Lord to restore his own glory, which he had laid aside in his humanity. He had laid aside all of his divine prerogatives not his essential deity, but his, the, the, all the, the manifestation of his deity and he, and he, when he came as a human. And he was asking now God to restore his glory, which God especially did in a couple of occasions at his baptism, at his transfiguration, and supremely at his resurrection and his ascension. And this is the manifestation that goes in gospel preaching. I've got several things I wanted to read when I was through, and I'm out of time. I'm just going to read one thing here because I love this. Listen to this. Um, it says, may God be gracious. It's a 67 Psalm, 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Recognize that. It's part of the ironic benediction of number six. That your way may be known on earth and your saving power may be known among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you that judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. He will bless us. And then finally the summation phrase is... Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That's gospel preaching. If mankind knew who God was, they would abandon their sins and flee to the arms of a loving father. 